thank you. Um, let me begin by uh, reading some scriptures. So there's four passages I'd like to read. I think they're going to be on the screen, potentially. Um, four short passages that might help us in our thinking tonight about reconciliation uh, and us as ministers of reconciliation. So first one is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. I'll just read that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 1, 19-23 For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in the faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And then two short passages from Revelation. Revelation 21 and then 22. So Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And the final part of scripture I'd like to read now is Revelation 22, 1-3. Then the angel showed me the river of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. May God bless the reading of his word. Tonight I want us to think about reconciliation. But to do that we might also need to look at division and interfaces. I want us to consider reconciliation in the broadest sense possible as we see it in scripture. But I also want us to look at these issues where the biblical story makes the western 
prevailing worldview that we bump into every day. Then I want to localize that to Northern Ireland in 2020 and think about how we might faithfully navigate these interface spaces as ambassadors of reconciliation. Now, Donna and May, in her, in her first week, have touched upon this idea of the grid. We'll be talking through a little bit of that. Hopefully, I won't waver that too much. But the issue of reconciliation goes right to the heart of huge philosophical and religious questions, far beyond political or legal systems. You can't help but ask questions like, what does justice really look like for the taking of a human life? Or, or what does it mean to be human in the first place? What does forgiveness look like worked out in practice? Can some situations ever be redeemed? And it's important to appreciate just how different the biblical worldview is from the prevailing culture that we see every day. If we fail to recognize how different our starting points are and our ending points and the stories that we're living in, then we'll miss each other in the daily interactions. It's like we're literally walking past each other talking different languages. So what is the big story being told in the prevailing culture right now that sits so much behind, behind so much of academia or, or politics or the media? Well, it starts with this. Uh, there's no creator. There's no creator God. There is no God. Life here is a cosmic fluke. Human beings have no objective or inherent value above a leaf or a plastic straw or an ape. Any value or worth or dignity we have, we, we give to ourselves above any other animals. Any sense of justice, compassion, morality is again our own invention. Richard Dawkins puts it like this. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. So other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason for it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if at the bottom of it there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, don't worry, it gets better from here. But that's the prevailing objective view of the world. And that's the beginnings, I suppose. The the ending is, well, death. This life is, is all there is, isn't it? There remains some sort of notion of an afterlife, of loved ones smiling down on us, but it's more of a cosmic comfort blanket than a strongly held religious belief today. And very importantly, there's no ultimate moral judge or justice beyond this life. So if something happens to me now and I get justice in this life, good, that's good. But if not, well, tough. There's a vague idea that things are going to get better, progress, But ultimately, there's no redemption. There's no reconciliation of all things in the the prevailing worldview. So ultimately, there's a mood that individual choice reigns supreme. We can do what we like as long as we're prepared to face the consequences of the human law in this life. And so the current obsession with human rights, equality, the battle against prejudice is, is really interesting. Some of this is really good and it's evidence of the common grace of God. It's evidence that despite the scars of the fall, the human image and relationships are still key to how we live our lives. 
It's evidence that deep down humanity still seeks justice and redemption, putting wrong things right. But ultimately there's a bit of a doomed attempt, I would suggest, to seek justice without acknowledging that there's a judge. Kingdom values without a king, redemption without repentance. An attempt to give dignity to humanity while refusing to acknowledge the one in whose very image we are made. An attempt to achieve equality without acknowledging Jesus before we all stand equally in need of salvation. I say all this to point out that in an increasingly secularized society, it's important to understand that many of the previously commonly held, previous commonly held understandings and values and worldview around redemption or reconciliation are quite different to those held by Christians. So what is the the biblical story on this? Well, Christianity claims to be public truth, an unfolding story of the whole world from creation through the fallenness we live in now through to the recreation. But the Bible is not just some history textbook. It's God's word calling us into new relationships, new identities with him, with each other and the world around us. In the beginning, God... We're only four words into the, the story and everything's completely different. Not us, not our conception of God, but God. The story starts with him and not us. That's a radically different starting point to the issue than the current worldview puts forward. Identity, we're made in the image of God. Human beings have inferred um, objective worth and value. Relationships, we were made for relationship with God, with each other, with the world around us. And we're given purpose to live in these relationships to steward the gifts that we've been given in this earth. In the Christian worldview, we also have the concept of sin, the fall and its effect on our identity, on our relationships with God, with each other, the world around us. So we have suffering, sickness, death. Sin fractures our identity and breaks our relationships And this idea of sin is becoming more and more offensive in the world here around us today. But God, through his covenants old and new, restores these relationships with people and gives new identities um, to them and in their relationships with each other. At the heart of the gospel is this gift of reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. We follow the God who, while we were yet far from him, and living in open rebellion to him calls us to be his children. So the biblical story is one where we're invited and pursued to be transformed from enemies into family. How incredible is that? Imagine a God who pursues his enemies, calling them instead to become his family. It's difficult for us to humanly get our heads around, and and so we don't miss it. Scripture uses lots of images here. So God is our father, we're brothers and sisters, we are both adopted and born again into the family of God, just in case we miss that. And through our relationship with Jesus as as the church, it is best communicated through this living symbol of marriage. So the not so subtle message throughout scripture, from seeds in Genesis to the healing trees of life in the garden in Revelation, 
is that we are pursued by God to be transformed from enemies into family. Ultimately, we believe that Jesus is returning one day with judgment and with justice and with new life in a new kingdom. This provides a basis for repentance and hope because one day there will be accountability, justice and mercy and they will meet together in Christ's rule over the new heavens and the new earth. So we look forward to the day when death will be no more and believe that God is making all things new. And what I've just covered briefly there are simply a few of the orthodox claims of the Christian church that you'd find in many creeds or catechisms. And yet, they are hugely different claims to the prevailing worldview that we bump into on a daily basis, particularly when it comes to this idea of redemption or reconciliation. So I want us to think about incarnational interfaces. What happens when these two views of the world bump or clash with each other? Well, as Christians, we live at this interface of these different views of the world every day. This is where we're called to be incarnational, embodying new identities and new relationships and purposes that we are given through the gospel. And in this contested space, we are sent in as Christ's ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, with a distinct presence, power, and purpose. So ambassadors, and here's some of the words from the text from 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, ministers of reconciliation, committed to us the message of reconciliation, Ambassadors, it's a deeply political image. Ambassadors are, are sent from one kingdom to another. They have a purpose. They're not just there on holidays or on a jolly or to live as private citizens. They're sent to live in one culture, but they're loyal citizens of another. They're sent with a purpose of representation. And their job is to read two cultures. They have to practice diplomacy. They have to translate their message appropriately. And so this is our role, not to wine and dine or broker trade deals, but to carry the values and truth of the gospel into the world around us. Every day in our lives, the Bible story in which we live cuts across the story of the culture around us. We are in the world but not of it. We are salt and light. We are sent by Jesus as his ambassadors on the earth. We're here but we belong to a different place. Because of where we've come from and where we're going, we see things very differently to the culture around us. And so it's here at this interface, as well as the clashing points, that we also find potential for shared language and and common ground and common grace. And so I wonder, have you ever thought about yourself in this way, living at an interface? Have you ever thought about the gospel in terms of being primarily a message of reconciliation? I wonder, what does it look like to be a peacemaker in a culture war? More specifically, what does the gospel as a message of reconciliation have to say and bring to Northern Ireland in 2020, a society where division still runs deep. How is the good news of reconciliation to be understood where there is a legacy of deep conflict in part 
because of religion. Well, let's, let's, we've gone from the global kind of Western worldview and the biblical understanding of reconciliation. That's still out there somewhere for, for many of us. Let's bring it a step, a step closer. Let's give the cultural story and the biblical story a bit of a local accent. The Battle of the Boeing. Well, that was about a Dutch Protestant king who had the backing of the Pope, who was fighting an English king who was a Catholic on the banks of an Irish river as part of a wider European war. So it's a bit more complicated than we are often read to believe, isn't it? No matter what your moral view on the history of this place, Protestantism arrived in these shores in turbulent and violent times and something of this culture remains today. Now the trouble is, and I don't raise this issue lightly, in a room even of this size, I know there will be people affected. And without going into all of the origins um, of the modern day troubles in a lot of detail, we can say it happened in the context of political, social and religious tension and injustice. What we've seen is the politicizing of injustice by both sides, injustice spawning injustice tip for tat over many years. Over 3,700 people died here during the Troubles, with many thousands more being injured and many more being psychologically affected by what they witnessed or experienced. Uh, So 3,720 deaths, 58% by Republican paramilitaries, 30% by loyalist paramilitaries, 10% by security forces, 2% unknown. But even these statistics are disputed, of course, because of allegations of state collusion or paramilitary infiltration. So distrust runs deep. We can't even agree on on some of these stats. Around 25% of all deaths happened in an area not much bigger than a square mile in North Belfast. In this area today, um, over 20 years after the Big Friday Agreement, this is where we see some of the highest levels of social and family breakdown, community trauma, addiction, mental health issues. Put simply, reconciliation is one of the greatest moral and social justice issues facing Northern Ireland today. That's quite a lot of statistics. Let's earth it down into two instances. On the 24th of July, 1997, James Morgan was 16 years old. He'd just finished his GCSEs and he was walking on that road between Castle Wellen and Clock. You've probably driven it, like me, lots of times. It's a nice summer's evening. He was walking along the road, waiting for his GCSE results. He was picked up by two men. After questioning him a little, he was um, stabbed and, and dumped in a watering hole used by cattle simply because he was a Catholic. Darkly, and even, even saying the name, you, you know where this is going, don't you? November the 20th, 1983, Sunday night like this, and a small Pentecostal fellowship were, were having their opening hymn, or you washed in the blood of the Lamb, when some members of the INLA pulled up and burst into a church and sprayed gunfire. Three people were killed. It was called an act of sectarian slaughter on a worshipping community which goes beyond any previous deed of violence. A local priest went to see one of the murdered elders' wives the next day and he was interviewed on TV after 
And he said the first words on her lips were forgiveness. And we see this throughout the troubles, utter despair and a hair's breadth away from some kind of otherworldly hope that somehow was weaved through it. Northern Ireland is a funny place. Geographically, we're kind of caught between London and Dublin. Uh, We're kind of dislocated on the edge of Western Europe, a bit like the cousin that no one really wants at the wedding. We have a kind of rural place and we have an island complex and that affects our outlook. If you look at maps or distributions of religious identity even today in Northern Ireland, you'll see it relates to our past. So North Antrim, County Down, you'll see mostly Protestants, obviously out west, mostly mostly Catholic. And not just mostly, there's most areas in Northern Ireland are are more than 60% of one religion or, or the other. And so... Our, our, our faith, our religion um, affects our geography. Our history has affected our geography in, in deep ways that make ruling today, make making decisions about education and where to put a school or social housing quite, quite difficult in many ways. We have a historical mindset of siege, suspicion, no surrender and defence in the Protestant community, I would suggest. It runs deep into the psychological and spiritual mindset, I would suggest, of the church today even. Unionism as a political um, entity has an achieved goal. We are part of the union. And so it's very hard to cast a future vision when you've already achieved your goal other than let's defend it, let's keep it. Um, So a lot of energy is invested in defending the status quo. Nationalism, on the other hand, has a goal still to be achieved. And so there's a sense of moving forward, of progress, of looking ahead. Whenever I uh, set a community group up in Rivarnet, where I used to live, mostly a Protestant area, I knocked about 200 doors just to say, hey, I'm setting up a community group. I wasn't invited in once over the threshold into someone's house. And I was chatting to a Catholic friend of mine. They said, you wouldn't have got past the first door before you were invited in for a cup of tea. And it's not that Protestant people are not welcoming or kind, but I wonder is there something of that mindset of defence and siege a little bit that still is retained just in the way we do life? Catholic uh, church often, um, Catholic community often works around parishes of proximity. Whenever I chat to some of my Catholic friends, they, they don't drive 20 miles because they really like the way Father Eugene does a Mass over there. They, they go to their local parish, their parishes of proximity. However, we in the evangelical community tend to be parishes of belief. So the parish model is alive and well, but we might drive past 12 churches to get to the one who teaches things that I agree with. And I'm not saying that as all criticism, I'm just saying this to remind ourselves that we, we operate in quite different ways, culturally with quite different mindsets, and we also have the luxury of driving past 12 churches in this part of the world that many other believers in other places don't. So we're a place apart in many ways, and yet contemporary Western secular prevailing culture is creeping in more and more. We're becoming more homogenous with any other Western country um, with the globalised fads and values. So even in, in Cullibaki or in Castle Wellen, 
you'll have a teenager in their bedroom sitting on their iPhone connecting with another teenager in Australia or in New York. So in Northern Ireland, we have this historically an ultra-religious place, a contested culture, but it's changing very rapidly, increasingly de-churched, secular, but still contested and divided. But if we fail to recognize some of these ongoing effects um, of the legacy of division, uh, particularly I would suggest for us as evangelicals from an Ulster Protestant identity potentially, if we don't realize the subtleties of history and geography, if we fail to recognize this, I'm not sure we're always going to be communicating as well as we could the gospel of reconciliation with God to this society that we live in. So maybe it's a fool's task, but how do we try to bring together a biblical understanding of reconciliation in a postmodern 21st century world that we live in in a specific place and people like Northern Ireland? Well, here's a few thoughts on how the church might respond. The church here has been deeply affected by the troubles and and properly defined as a body of people. There are members of the church who made key political decisions. There are members of state forces, members who were killed or injured or who lost loved ones, members who took lives and then came to a saving faith in Christ. The church buried the dead, cared for the bereaved, made statements which called for violence to end and pointed to a better way. And while much good work was, and care, pastoral care was given by churches, we haven't always got it right. I think there's three broad ways that the church could act as ambassadors of reconciliation in these days and those that lie ahead of us. Three Ps. I think we need to be prophetic, pastoral, and practical. Prophetic. I think there's a time for us to repent in some ways. This is not a bland or a blanket statement or the idea that everyone was responsible for everything that happened. That clearly was not the case. But on occasion, earthly empires have been confused with the kingdom of God. As Christians, our primary identity is now and will one day be as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we need to hold on to our other very legitimate political or national identities loosely in comparison. At times the church has been too vocal on some of this, on other times deafeningly silent. Culture, politics and religion have been confused and conflated. God predates and transcends the many labels used in Northern Ireland. Perhaps we need to just remember at times that God is not a Protestant or a Catholic. He's the almighty, holy God, and we need to be careful not to fall into the age-old sin of remaking him in our image. Where the church has fallen short, we should repent. I think there's a role for the church, a prophetic role in the broadest sense, of developing more of a public theology again of reconciliation. Many great and noble attempts have been made at political leadership and grassroots leadership across civil society to make and maintain peace here over the years. I think as many people would agree, things would have been a lot worse but for the influence of the church and of Christians here. The degree of reconciliation that has been achieved is to be welcomed. 
Um, and it's been a long and costly journey for many people. But today, are we, trying to make, we are trying to make peace, an ongoing peace, in a very different context to when the modern-day troubles broke out 50 years ago or when the roots of the conflict began hundreds of years before that. As we know and as we've looked at, the language of reconciliation is deeply biblical. Truth, justice, repentance, forgiveness, redemption. But when God is removed from the thinking of reconciliation, as I'm suggesting he has been in the current age that we live in, when the world then becomes disenchanted from the presence and possibilities of the Almighty, the horizons of what is possible tend to narrow. So modern Western culture is deeply shaped by individualism and the privatization of truth. Might I suggest that this makes reconciliation, which is essentially the restoration of broken relationships, a much more difficult task today than even 50 years ago. So, for example, justice is reduced to what can be achieved by human beings within this lifetime. And any moral imperative to our neighbor or indeed enemy has moved from an issue of relationship to one of rights. Remedies today, in the political or legal sense, are often contractual, not covenantal, as we might understand it. And so government efforts and political efforts are good, but they're limited to the realms where they can exercise authority, where they can provide uh, an economic or a constitutional carrot or a stick. Many secular attempts at reconciliation, though entirely genuine, are therefore thin, asking too little rather than too much of those involved. And it's really because authority cannot be exercised in the realm of hearts and minds, and so it lacks the biblical concept of shalom, living in right relationship, restoration with each other. But I'd suggest that the redemption found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides hope for the hardest of human experiences. The victim who will never receive an earthly apology or the perpetrator who will never receive an earthly pardon can both find new identities and relationships and redemption through the cross of Christ. This is the type of prophetic public theology that we need to hear and see more of which promotes faithful biblical understanding providing a collective, collective imagination of what a reconciled and restored community could look like. The church can contribute vision, language, spaces, and practical opportunities for healing and hope. Pastoral, just briefly on this, pastoral care and, and mediation of a sort, almost every congregation will have victims and survivors, potentially ex-paramilitaries or combatants, and state forces, or PSNI, RUC, sometimes all three, sitting together in the same room. How can the church model being being a radical community of honor, of hope, of healing, between and across that wide range of people? We have a resource called Be Reconciled that might help tease out some of those conversations. It's available to download on our website. And the final thing for churches is practical. Um, 
There's 10 new areas being designated by TBUC, together building a united community. Uh, and the new, the new deal that was formed at Stormont has, um, they've agreed that in the first 100 days, they are going to bring in all the institutions that were promised for dealing with the past under the Stormont House Agreement. So if, if that's true, there's going to be a lot of things being brought up in the next number of months. Um, and we're already into the 50-year anniversary of a lot of the massacres and things that happened during the Troubles. So again, back to the pastoral, I think there's opportunities for churches to engage in this, but also to provide buildings and spaces as places where new communities, mixed social housing, can maybe meet to mediate things out um, or just to practical conversations. Are are churches welcoming spaces for all members of the community? Um, I think we need an internal, gospel-centered and missional conversation at a denominational level and a local level about the place of flags, parades, symbols and how churches and church buildings um, interact with those things. I think we need training for church leaders on pastoral care and mission in the culture that we live in. Blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the sons of God, but they'll also be misunderstood and called many other names, traitors or even uh, ecumenicals. We, We would never send church planters to Gaza without training them in the conflict there and its cultural impact. Yet it seems that many church leaders are prepared for ministry in Northern Ireland without a comprehensive understanding of the conflict and the culture that we live in. So those are a few suggestions. You can uh, have a conversation with me after. I'm open to to questions. But I want to graciously provoke and suggest that as a church, we have a role to play in reconciliation. Because at heart, we believe in reconciliation and redemption. And actually at heart, the community around us in the secular prevailing worldview outside of Christ does not believe in redemption or reconciliation. But finally, I want to bring this back down from the church to the individual. And I think just now, in my final words, there's there's an amazing opportunity in recovering an understanding of the gospel fundamentally as a message of reconciliation to a watching world. Think of your favourite TV show or book or piece of music and then think about it ending unresolved three quarters of the way through. At our deepest level, we yearn for and desire resolution and reconciliation. It's part of the human condition, the way that we're made. As Carl Rayner has said, ultimately in this world, there is no finished symphony. Dallard Willard Dallas Willard says, When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. And so today, as we see such division, restlessness, and chronically unsatisfied desires, into this space we bring a radical radical message of reconciliation and redemption. As people feel increasingly fearful and frustrated by the world, we can draw alongside and whisper, it's almost like it wasn't meant to be this way. The invitation of God to be be reconciled to him through Christ 
is still good news today. It aligns with the deepest desires of the human heart, bringing meaning out of chaos and hope and life out of death and despair. Be blessed as you go from here as ambassadors of the Ministry of Reconciliation. Thank you.